The Environmental Protection Agency is asking Congress for a big boost in funding next year. At more than $12 billion, it would be EPA's biggest budget ever. A Biden administration goal is to reverse a shrinking workforce to match the growing workload. Senate Republicans took issue with some of EPA's 2024 proposals. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman has the latest. Among efforts to tackle climate change, protect public health, and improve infrastructure, a top priority of the EPA budget request is rebuilding its workforce. Senator Tom Carper, the Environment and Public Works Committee chairman, says the increase is necessary after years of underfunding and understaffing. The budget proposal includes roughly 2,000 additional employees for EPA, which Carper says will be especially important for the agency. Here's Carper. It's no secret that EPA has not always received the resources, at least in the last decade or so, than the resources required to be successful. In recent years, flat budgets and staffing shortages have severely undermined the agency's ability to do its job in many respects. As EPA's responsibilities and workload continues to grow in the face of climate change and other human-caused environmental disasters, it should come as no surprise that the agency is overburdened. That's especially true when we look at the agency's workforce. EPA's current uh, number of staff, that's about 15,000 as well, below the range of 16 to 18,000 that the agency had from 1990 through 2012. For the years, we've asked the EPA to do uh, more with less, much less. But the budget request was met with skepticism from Republican members of the committee who questioned the proposed influx of funding. They say the boost is unnecessary as the agency has already received billions of dollars of additional investments through the Inflation Reduction Act and the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. The committee's ranking member, Senator Shelley Moore Capito, explains. Well, I think one of the issues here is the enormity of the dollars. EPA received $41 billion, and yet the president wants another 19% increase, 2,000 more people, when with the $41 billion, you're allowed to hire people to move forward these programs. To me, it's just mind-boggling in this time of fiscal restraint or where people are really watching their dollars, this kind of overreach and overspending. I mean, it just seems so exorbitant to me. EPA Administrator Michael Regan, who testified before the committee, says the bills only apply for part of the agency's mission. He says the work for EPA is much broader than that. Here's Regan. Well, we're we're not solely a an energy agency. I mean, we focus on environmental protection. So IRA and Bill don't afford dollars to very critical programs that oversee TSCA, pesticides, herbicides. I mean, we have a lot of programs that are in need of resources that don't fit neatly under the umbrella of IRA and Bill. You know, while the percentage seems high, the dollar amount that EPA is asking for uh, of an agency this side and the scope and the magnitude of our responsibility uh, is, is a catch-up game. We, we've been in decline for, for decades, not just one or two administrations, for decades. And so we're trying to develop a workforce that can keep pace with a very challenging and growing economy. With the additional work, EPA says it will need more employees to do the job. Unions who represent EPA employees and many EPA workers themselves have raised concerns about the staff being overworked. It's causing issues like low morale and burnout, just to name a few. The agency's staff has flatlined in recent years despite a now rapidly growing workload. But the Senate committee's ranking member Capito says she's looking for more details. She wants clear answers on EPA's return to office plans before she says she'd be on board with the additional funding. Here's Capito. Last year when you testified before the committee, we discussed EPA employees. When would they be back to work in person? And you said, quote, all employees are scheduled to be back by the last period in April 2022. 
This year's budget proposal suggests, however, that back in the office does not mean actually present in the office. We need to do this before we seriously consider any more administrative outlays, including the EPA's desire to hire approximately 2,000 additional FTEs. The need for so many additional workers is at best questionable given recent EPA announcements about how it's going to manage large buckets of money appropriated by the IRA. The EPA is sitting on more money than it's had in its history. EPA's budget request for fiscal 2024 says that hybrid work for the agency will only be increasing. It's become a concern for some members of Congress as well as D.C. officials. They say that federal agencies in general are not using their office space to its full potential. In the budget proposal, EPA says it would consider alternatives for office space. For example, the agency said it may be willing to share office spaces with other agencies or use hoteling, where EPA employees can share unassigned desks. Regan explained more. Most of our employees are working on a hybrid schedule, just like the rest of the federal government and corporate America. Uh, But, you know, I'd, I'd like to say that we are definitely meeting all of our performance targets. So our staff is fully engaged. I think what we're trying to do is is do what everyone else is doing, which is think about how do we have a responsible policy in place that leverages our workforce. Um, Whether you're in corporate America, state government, or the federal government, uh, people have hybrid working conditions, and we're trying to be sure that we're accommodating that schedule while meeting our mission. In one example of a struggling component of EPA, Democrat Alex Padilla, a member on the Environment and Public Works Committee, pointed to challenges for the Office of Air and Radiation. But Padilla says it hasn't been easy amid years of low staff levels. Here's Padilla. We need to continue this collaboration. We need the EPA to expedite reductions in pollution from these mobile sources. I also want to recognize, in all fairness to you, that years of underfunding during the Trump administration has made it particularly challenging for EPA to fulfill its obligation to these disproportionately impacted communities. Now, EPA has a mission to also protect public health and advance environmental justice, but that work cannot be done without sufficient resources and staff. Despite a sizable budget for fiscal 2023, Regan says more resources are still needed. If you talk to my staff, they are very grateful for last year's uh, budget, but we are still in need of significant resources. There are some that might suggest that we can't absorb these increases. Uh, that's a hard message to give to people who are already worked, overworked, and working six and seven days a week. So absolutely, when we look at the challenges facing our country, especially on the transportation side, uh, the amount of skills and resources uh, and bodies that we need to keep pace with a changing Uh, economy and technologies, we absolutely need these bodies that we're requesting. And on top of simply hiring more staff, EPA says it plans to incorporate diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility, a top priority for the Biden administration, into its hiring practices. It's also planning to expand and start a paid internship program for the agency. The budget proposal would also staff up and add funding for the Human Resources Office. The enacted 2023 budget for EPA's HR office was about $58 million, and the agency is asking for nearly $80 million for 2024. Overall, Regan says the budget proposal is necessary to accomplish the goals for the agency. Here's Regan. It is definitely putting us on the trajectory to do that. The percentage increase that we received last year was the first step. This year, I know 19% sounds like a lot, but when you look at the dollar amount, and the needs of the agency. It's not. 
but it is positioning the agency to help this country stay globally competitive and keep up with the 21st century. Drew Friedman, Federal News Network. Check out Drew's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Har's man. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. That, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, It had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, 
what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. 
if you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.